Welcome to the Saturday Slammin' Jam, hosted by Andrew Schlicht with Alex Spears. How about we can just watch basketball? That's a man's jam! I like that idea. Live from Oklahoma. Click, click. With questions and participants from all around the world. Anthony Edwards! Put that on a poster! Whether you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee, get ready, sit back, relax. It's the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Back is I missed this shot, I walk away, I'm still a chump. Here's Andrew. Welcome to the Saturday Slam and Jam. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show to get The Athletic for $1 a month for six months. We're in the NBA Finals now. We've got tons of content just coming at you from The Athletic. We will talk about Game 1 here in just a little bit. But right now, I've got my good friend Alex Spears. Alex, what's up, dude? Uh, what's up, dude? And we've got uh, our first guest, Sean Hyken, who covers the NBA for Bleacher Report and is also a resident of Portland, Oregon. Sean, what's up? How you guys doing? Uh, We're doing great. Great. I t- so great. I told Andrew, uh, like on Tuesday, that I wanted to have someone on to talk about the Blazers just because it seemed like there was so much going on. And that was even before what happened on Thursday, which that's where I want to start. Because on Thursday, Adrian Wojnarowski reported that Nike founder Phil Knight and Dodgers co-owner Alan Smolininski have made an offer to buy the Blazers that totals over $2 billion. I want to know what your initial reaction to that news was, and specifically to Phil Knight's involvement, because from an outsider's perspective, it seems like an obvious partnership, given that Nike is based just outside of Portland, but there seemed to be a lot of surprise on Twitter that his name was involved. Yeah, I was stunned by that. And not, I mean, I agree with you on paper. It seems like it would make a lot of sense, but... Phil Knight has been adamant for decades that he doesn't want to own a team. He's not interested in it. The end, like different sports leagues, the NBA, the NFL, other leagues have all tried to get him to buy teams over the years. And he's just never been interested in doing it. And so why at age 84 yeah. is he suddenly reversing course on that? So that, so that part of it was totally shocking to me, but the, the idea of the Blazers getting sold was, not as shocking to me because it's it's that's kind of been the buzz over the last really more so over the last year but really since Paul Allen died in 2018 there's been a thought like just kind of the general you know sense has been that his sister Jody who has been running his estate since he died isn't really that interested in owning the Blazers or the Seahawks hmm. and now you know I've I've kind of been chasing this and you know looking into this for the last really year or so, but there's actually a clause. So, so it's kind of, it's kind of a complicated thing to explain. So I'll, I'll, I'll try my best here, but the ownership situation with the Blazers is actually kind of uh, unusual. Uh, I think the closest thing to it right now is the Denver Broncos who are kind of in a similar setup and they're going through like a process of trying to be sold right now. But when Paul Allen died, all of his assets. So the Blazers, the Seahawks, his various super yachts, whatever else, we're all placed in a trust and his sister Jody is the trustee of the trust, but she, so she doesn't own any of this stuff outright. Whereas like if she just owned the stuff, if she just owned the team, if there was an offer she liked, she could just take it. But because she's just the Hmm. trustee of the trust, there's a lot more legal stuff that kind of has to be untangled and figured out Mm -hmm. in order for the team to be sold, which is why it's taken this long. But 
there's also like, I, I haven't been able to nail down the exact details of what would trigger it or when it has to happen or how it has to happen. But I've been told that there is a clause in the trust that says that eventually all of his assets, be it, you know, the Blazers, the Seahawks, all of his different businesses, whatever, have to be sold at some point. So she can't, she can't uh, hold on to these teams forever. They literally have to be sold legally at some point. So I, there's been talk that that might be soon. You had started to hear in the last few months that within the next 12 to 18 months, that something might happen. The guy that I had always heard behind the scenes was like the front runner to do it, to be the buyer was Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, who has been on NBA teams in the past. He tried to get the Warriors in 2010 when the Lakers bought it. And he tried to get the Grizzlies in uh, 2011 when Robert Parra bought them. But like, so he's been wanting to buy a team for a while. That's the guy that I had heard for a while was kind of earmarked as the next Portland buyer. But you know how it goes with these with these sales, like the Utah Jazz. Nobody even knows they're for sale overnight. Oh, uh, they're 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 sold now. And then, uh, yeah. you know, the Minnesota Timberwolves. Like there have been people that tried to buy them over the years. Deals fell through. Oh, now A Rod and Mark Laurie are buying. Yeah. So you brought up this idea that like these assets have to be sold based yes. on like the direction of the trust. So that made the Trailblazer statement when this all came out kind of interesting because a Trailblazer spokesperson came out, says an offer was made by Phil Knight. The team remains not for sale. What do you think the team's angle is here when everyone knows they have to sell this at some point? The offer was two billion and they're trying to get three. That's what I that's how I read that. <laughs> like, okay. And you saw and you saw last uh, last night at his uh state of the league press conference before game one of the finals, Adam Silver was asked directly about this news. And I mean, you guys have followed the league and covered the league for a long time. You know how Adam handles this kind of stuff. He does not speak off the cuff at all about Mm -hmm. league business matters. Like any, any answer he's going to give at a press conference has been vetted and practiced and approved by like 3 million different people. Oh yeah. This is the kind of thing normally you would expect. He's asked about a specific team, you know, having an offer made. He would say something like, I'm not going to comment on that. That's between the owner and the person wanting to buy that. He would say something like that. So for him to come out and say, I don't know the timeline, but the team is going to be sold hours after someone in whether, I don't know whether it was Jody or Burt Cole or someone in the Vulcan organization that, uh, put that out but hours after the ownership group said the team is not for sale the commissioner comes out and says the team will be <laughs> right. sold at some point like yeah, right that just solidified to me that they're walking it back because i mean for also first of all like the commissioner is not like i said the commissioner is not going to comment on this unless there's something real to it and like just the way that like a lot of this reporting stuff works Woj is not going to put that out unless it's right. like because Every yeah. team, every, every, all 30 NBA owners get offers every single day for their teams. And most of them are like not serious or not something they're interested in. And all of the, you know, reporters will hear about this. And it's just like with trade rumors, like things get talked about all the time that are never serious. And most of the top newsbreakers, whether it be Woj or Shams or Chris Haynes or whoever, aren't going to actually go with something publicly unless it's real and there's a chance that it gets done. Yeah. And so the fact that Woj actually came out with this makes me, you know, my immediate reaction was he would not do that if it wasn't far enough down the road that there was a real shot of it happening. And so 
my immediate read on it, and I think this was only solidified by what the commissioner said later in the day at the press conference, is that they're trying to deny that the team is for sale in order to either make sure other bidders have a chance to get it in or, mm-hmm. you know, get their offers in or drive the price up. I personally, I think 2 billion considering that the jazz just sold for 1.6, I think, and the Timberwolves sold for 1.5 Portland is also a small market, but you know, you can look at those franchises and say, maybe the Blazers have like more of a track record of success. They have more of a, you know, fan following. Like there's more, like there's a reason that the, the Blazers should be worth maybe half a billion more than those teams. But I think, Two billion is a pretty good offer. It's about in line with what Forbes at their last valuations of the franchise has said that the team is worth. But I think that the Vulcans are probably trying to get like 2.5 or three. And so they're putting up this, you know, now this is sort of a public negotiation where they're saying the team isn't for sale and hopes that maybe Phil Knight panics and is like, oh, well, hey, you want 2.5 instead? Okay, sure. And then that's how it gets done. (laughs) So yet another angle... And this came during Silver's press conference before the game. Uh, And speaking about the Blazers, Silver said, Portland has been a wonderful community for the NBA. My preference would be that the team remains in Portland. Uh, Obviously, that's better than him saying he prefers the Blazers move. But (laughs) what do we think is behind this comment? And like, what is he like alluding to here? I have always been so confused about why that's, a thing I don't like it feels to me like that's just like something that local fans here and like talk radio hosts and whatever are just like making up to panic about like there's never been any serious talk of the team moving and like I know that like the obvious you know angle there would be well you know Paul Allen is was based in Seattle and owned the Seahawks and now Seattle doesn't have a team but like mm-hmm it's been a pretty badly kept secret around the league for a couple of years that when they do expansion, whenever that may be that Seattle is going to be one of the teams or one of the cities that gets a team along with Vegas. And I think also like the league has seen what the backlash was and the fallout was of letting the Sonics move to Oklahoma city 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, a couple of years later when David Stern, when uh, uh, Chris Hansen, the hedge fund guy from Seattle bought the, had an offer in place to buy the Kings and move them to Seattle. David Stern basically threw his body in front of it. and was like, we're not going to let another, you know, longstanding team leave their city, especially since it's a small market that only has one pro sports team. Like I have never for a minute thought that that was a real thing. And I, I guess Adam said that because he was asked about it, but like, that's not a thing. Okay. And then there's a final angle to the story, which is Phil Knight's obvious connection to Nike, who's Mm -hmm. a significant force in the league. Um, You saw a lot of sentiment after this tweet from Woj about people saying, Oh, is there a conflict of interest here? Because Nike is, I mean, they make the jerseys like this. is This would be a huge deal. Isn't there? Is Would they allow this to happen? What were your thoughts on those concerns that we saw on Twitter? Well, first of all, Phil Knight hasn't actively been an executive at Nike for several years. Yes, he founded the company and obviously still has a lot of deep ties to the company. But in terms of like his active role, like I said earlier, he's in his 80s. He's not actively working as an executive at Nike anymore. Like that's that's not something. But. Then it's also like 
all of these NBA teams are owned by billionaires who, in, in a lot of cases, run you know different businesses that have different partnerships. Like Michael Jordan owns a team, and he, he he's not right. the founder of Nike, but Jordan Brand is a branch of Nike that's named after him that he basically runs, and yeah, that's not a conflict. I just talked about Ryan Smith, the new owner of the Jazz. I don't know if you guys, uh, I mean, if you guys have like covered games in person at all this year, we mm-hmm. all had to upload our vaccination info into the NBA system. And the system, like, I, I remember this, this uh, when, you know, in like December or whatever, when I had to upload my updated thing to the, like their central database, it said like that their database was powered by Qualtrics, which is Ryan Smith's company. So is it a conflict yeah. of interest <laughs> for the owner of one of the teams to have his you know, data system be used by the league to like, I don't know. I, I think that like this, that, that stuff is kind of overblown. And like I said, other sports, like whether it be the NBA or the NFL sports leagues for 40 years or however long it's been that Nike has been like a real player in like the sports world. Leagues have tried actively to get Phil Knight to be interested in buying a team. And he's never been interested until now. So yeah, clearly the league doesn't view it as a conflict. That's a really good point. Um, okay, let's move on to basketball. Uh, okay. So this week, we had a report from Jake Fisher linking Portland OG Ananobi. I wanted to read the Blazers Edge transcription from Jake's Please Don't Aggregate This Podcast, so we're on the same page. So you're aggregating a podcast that's called Please Don't Aggregate This. I I'm actually it. aggregating an aggregation of a podcast called Please Don't Aggregate This. So yes, I understand what I'm doing. So, so Jake said... Quote, there's been word going around a lot of team executives since March or so about the fact that maybe OG Ananobi is unhappy in Toronto and maybe that he wants out. There's enough information out there in and around the league that there's some type of friction about his role in Toronto this season and moving forward. Regardless of whether the Raptors have been interested in moving him or what have you, Portland has been repeatedly characterized to me as the team that is very much trying to make inroads to add OG Ananobi through their trade exception to go pair him with Damian Lillard. Uh, first, I have to give a shout out to Danny Morang of the Jack Ramsey's podcast, who has been That's talking about this for months. He's been talking yeah. about OG Ananobi as the Blazers' summer target for months now. Okay, let's assume those reports are true. Do you see OG as Portland's number one target this summer among the realistic options? And what do you think about his fit in Portland? I do think that he, I, I've heard the same thing that that's, that, I mean, there, there's a few guys that they're go, you know, that they have kind of penciled as like their top guys that they're, zeroing in on there's oh you know og i think is the top one because i think he checks all the boxes of being a somewhat gettable and b you know contract and role and fit and he's also the other thing about him is he's a clutch guy and both chauncey billups and uh joe cronin their new general manager are also clutch hmm. so there's a there's a lot of like clutch and also yusuf nurkic who is like their top free agent that they're probably going to re-sign is is a clutch guy so there is a lot of clutch influence in the organization now, ever since the front office changes that took place in December. And I think that if the Blazers think that OG is unhappy in Toronto, that they're probably getting that info from clutch, yeah, which has mm-hmm. a lot of overlap with a lot of the key decision makers in the Blazers organization. So, you know, I don't really know a lot of people in the Raptors front office. I don't really know where their minds are at on it or how available they actually say OG is, but I just know that if the Blazers think he's available, they're probably getting that from clutch and from OG's side. 
So, you know, he's a guy that they're really looking at. Jeremy Grant is somebody that we've obviously heard a lot about. They were very interested in him at the deadline. I think they're still very interested in him, but I think that the idea for their ideal offseason would be for them to use the number seven pick to get OG and then use other stuff to get Jeremy Grant. Cause I think at this point, they don't think it'll take that number seven pick to get Jeremy Grant. Cause they, they, they feel like maybe Detroit doesn't have a lot of leverage or that, you know, there aren't going to be that many good offers for him or, or, or whatever the Deandre Ayton situation. I know they're very much paying attention to whether that be a situation where they, with the seventh pick, take whoever Phoenix likes. And then once free agency starts, you do a sign and trade with Nurkic and Aiton, like, and do something in that way. Like that, that's something I think they're interested in. And then John Collins from Atlanta is the other guy that I've heard that they're interested mm-hmm. in. So that, that's sort of the, to answer your question, OG very much fits the type of like, they're looking for bigger wings and front court guys, basically. Yeah. Because like they have, they have like the Zach Levine thing. And I've talked about this and written about this before. The Zach Levine thing has never made sense to me. And that's never, I've never heard, like heard that that's actually something they're seriously interested in because they, you know, you have Dame and you have Anthony Simons now who they're going to resign. So you have mm-hmm. like the scoring guard thing kind of taken care of their issue for the last several years has been defense. So they're looking to so a guy like OG or, you know, a Deandre Ayton, if they can somehow get him, those would be like the perfect guys to add around Dame. And so I, you know, the OG stuff, I, I, it's definitely real that they're interested in him, how realistic it is that they actually can get a deal done or if they have enough to get him, or if, you know, they have more than other teams are going to offer, because if Toronto actually puts him on the market, they're going to have other offers, but right. I can tell you, I do think that they're interested in him and they're very much, you know, they would, they would like, the, it, he, he would be the best case scenario for somebody they could realistically add this off season. That's what I'll say. And comparing mm-hmm. him to some of the other targets, like with Aiton, you're going to have to give him like a 30 million plus max sure, per year. Yeah. And he's a lot younger than Jeremy Grant. Like he seems to like just fit everything. Yeah. That Portland could possibly he checks want. all the boxes, but again, like if he actually comes available, which I think going into the playoffs, I mean, this is, this is how much like all this stuff can change, you know, in such a short time, because going into the playoffs, Phoenix has been destroying people all year. And even though like that weird stuff happened in the fall with Aiton's not getting an extension and he felt like they lowballed him and there was some weird stuff going on there. Phoenix was so good this year that I think everybody just assumed, Oh, they're going to win. They're either going to go to the finals or win the title. And then it's just going to be open and shut that Phoenix is going to resign him for the max. Like, mm-hmm. but then, you know, game seven goes the way that it goes. He only plays 17 minutes. And then uh, Monty says after the game that it was internal. And so now suddenly teams are like, wait, is Deandre Ayton gettable? Like, is this like, so that just totally changes the calculus on it. But just like what I said with OG, Portland is not going to be the only team that is interested in DeAndre Ayton. And so it's a matter of, A, where does he want to go? Because he has some say in it. We, you know, even though he's a restricted free agent, he can say, I'll only agree to assign and trade with this team or this team. So I don't know where Portland stands on that. I know Dane liked a tweet saying they should get Ayton, which I guess means that it's going to happen, <laughs> given, if, <laughs> given the way that a lot of this stuff goes. But like, he has he get has some say in it and then also like again does portland have the bet is nurkic plus whoever they take with the seventh pick is that the best offer that's out there so if you can get it done yeah that's probably like the best option for somebody they could get but like there's a lot there's a lot still kind of to be figured out between now and the start of free agency next month yeah, OG is so interesting because you think like the seventh pick for OG and Anobi kind of makes sense 
you know, if if he is unhappy, the Raptors with their draft history, and if they yeah. like somebody in that range, could get somebody pretty nice. But I also look at the Kings, who are a team that's trying to get better. I mean, would that make sense? Like four for OG Ananobi? Is that too rich for OG? I honestly kind of don't think so, especially with this draft. And and you wonder if if you know the Raptors could you know call the Kings and say like, hey, we're getting the seventh pick. Would you give us the fourth pick, and we'll give you a future pick? You know, I just wonder if if there's something there with yeah, the Kings as well. Are you talking of, about OG? Are you talking about OG going to the Kings, or are you talking about the Raptors then using the doing the deal with Portland and then? I'm talking about OG going to the Kings because I mean the Kings want to win. Okay, well you have to you have to wonder then what does Clutch want? Does Clutch want him? Would Clutch rather have him in Sacramento or would they rather have him in? I mean I think he would make a lot of sense with the Kings because they still you know they have De'Aaron Fox as like their lead guard. They yeah. just traded for Demontis Sabonis, and so having like a defense focused wing who can also score like OG, I think that would make a lot of sense for them, especially they just hired a defensive minded coach in Mike Brown. So yep. that would make a lot of sense, but. This is again where the clutch thing comes into play. Do you think Clutch would rather have him in Sacramento, where that's you know one of the most dysfunctional organizations in the league for going on two decades? And yeah, you know, they have a new coach that you know nobody knows how that's gonna work. And like it's just a lot of uncertainty in that whole situation. Or would they rather have him in Portland with Dame, who just had this ab surgery and is gonna be healthy, and a coach who's also clutch? Like yeah. I if yeah. if that's that's kind of where I think a lot of that would come into play. I would think that, you know, if it was just the Raptors weighing offers in a vacuum with none of this other stuff coming into play, obviously an offer built around the fourth pick is a better offer than an offer built around the seventh pick. But like, how much does Sacramento want to deal with the clutch stuff? How much is clutch going to use their influence to try to get him where he wants to go? Like, that's the part that I'm not really as sure about. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point because a friend of the show, Trill Bro Dude, he tweeted out after this, I'm pretty sure the only decent players Masai has ever traded who he drafted are Norman Powell, DeLon Wright, and Jakob Pertl, and he won all those trades. He's only trading OG if he's fleecing the other team. And like <laughs> assuming things aren't terrible behind the scenes with OG in Toronto, I actually tend to agree with him. Be like, why... Why would Masai do this? Like we've talked about it. OG is at the very minimum, like an elite three and D player in this league. And he's making under $20 million a year for several more years. Like it feels like when Masai's involved, a deal for that type of player would just take an enormous amount to win them over. And so like talking about, like I agree that the seventh pick is too much for someone like Jeremy Grant. And it feels more right for someone like OG but like when you, I factor in the Maasai angle, I'm like, it would probably have to be even more than that for something like this to happen. This is really funny to me, this the, this whole, because I've seen, I saw that tweet. I love Trill Bro, dude. I, I'm a big fan of the concept of trade slop. Like yeah. that's, I, I, I love <laughs> that. We dude. all, yes. But like, I, you know, I've seen that, that tweet. I've seen kind of that sentiment. And it kind of reminds me of the way that people talked about Daryl Morey during the whole Ben Simmons thing, where whenever anybody like talked about, oh, they should trade him here or they could get this for him. There was always this like people would you know say, you know, if there's one thing we know about Daryl Morey, it's that he will wait until the best deal comes into play. And with the Daryl stuff, you kind of understood it because Daryl has a lot of relationships with 
you know, some of the top, you know, NBA reporters. And so if they say that, like, he's this incredible negotiator, maybe he'll like return their texts or something. Masai doesn't like talk to reporters. <laughs> Masai does like, you're not getting anything out of telling, you know, being like, well, there's no way that Masai is ever going to do a deal that he doesn't completely win. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe that's possible. Maybe they don't trade OG. I don't think it's, I, again, I don't know anybody in the Raptors front office. I don't have firsthand Intel on this. I wouldn't be surprised if they just decide not to trade him and be like, Hey, you know, you're under contract for three more years, deal with it. But we've also seen clutch, you know, they just did it with Ben Simmons. They did it with Eric Bledsoe in Phoenix back in the day when he was trying to, uh, you know, get a new extension. They did it with Tristan Thompson and with Jr. and Cleveland. Those were a little bit of different situations because those guys were free agents, but we have seen clutch have their guys hold out and not show up to camp and do the Raptors. You know, you can't rule out that they might try to do something like that with OG if they really want him gone and do the Raptors want to deal with that. Like, I, Hmm. I don't know how all of this is going to play out, but the clutch thing I think is what complicates it. Mm Mm-hmm. So moving on to the draft, the Blazers followed up their bad luck with the Pelicans pick by falling down a spot to seven in the lottery. Portland has four options with the pick. Trade up, make the pick, trade down, or trade out. With the draft a few weeks away, uh, how would you rank those four options in terms of what's most likely? I would say most likely would be that they trade the pick because their objective, they've said this, on the record, like they, this is not like me reporting stuff. They have said this, like they're not trying to rebuild. They, they want, you know, they have Dame. Dame doesn't want to leave as much as, you know, a lot of people around the league are trying to speak that into existence. Dame doesn't want to leave. Dame's bought in. They want to keep building around Dame. The best way to do that is probably to trade the number seven pick for somebody who's experienced and can contribute right now to winning more so than a rookie that they would have to like, you know, develop and, you know, wait and see how good they are right away. Like, I think, so I think that's the most likely scenario, whether that's for OG or whether that's like a sign and trade for DeAndre Ayton or something else that we don't even know is on the board right now. I think that's the most likely scenario. Second most likely scenario, I think, is that they just keep the number seven pick and use somebody there because I think that this draft, and I fully admit I'm not like the biggest draft expert in the world. I don't have a lot of opinions about these prospects, I don't really have a strong take at this point on who they should draft, but from what I understand outside, like the clear top four and whatever order you want to put them in is going to be Chet, Jabari, Paolo, and uh, Jaden Ivey. Like, it seems like that's sort of the consensus. After that, I feel like there are a lot of different guys that different teams and different, you know, talent evaluators who I trust feel like these could be good players and these could be, uh, uh, you know, guys that actually could be good fits in different places. It's not like, those are clearly the top four most talented, but it's not like it's those four and then everybody else sucks. Like I haven't gotten mm-hmm. the sense that that's the draft. As far as who they could be looking at there, the only guy that they've brought in already is Dyson Daniels, the kid from Australia who mm-hmm. played at the G League Ignite last uh, season. He's, yeah. he's the only one that they brought in for a workout. They're doing a couple more workouts on Sunday and Monday. I don't know yet who they're going to bring in, but you know, some of the names that you've kind of heard connected to them at that spot are maybe Matherin, maybe uh, Shaden Sharp, like 
what was what's really interesting, and I mean, this this is just interesting. So, like a couple weeks, like a week ago, they hired Mike Schmitz, the Draft Express, obviously yeah. ESPN analyst, as an assistant GM. And right. Yeah, we didn't even ask you about that. That's like a whole nother thing that we can get into. We can get too many newsworthy Blazers things. We can get into that in a second if you want. But <laughs> yeah. after that, after that hire was reported, I went back and listened to the most recent episode of Woj's podcast, which they rec- yeah. which he was on, which uh-huh. they recorded right after the lottery results were announced. Yeah, and he said something, and. I'm sure that at this point he was already like in discussions with the Blazers about this job. I don't know the full timeline of it, but yeah, I'm sure that when they recorded this podcast, he was already like, it was already like a possibility for him that he was going to take this job. And so when they asked, and so I thought it was interesting when they asked when Woj asked him about uh, the number seven pick that Portland had just gotten in the lottery, he said something about if it was me in this spot, I would just take the best player available and just focus on talent over fit. And he specifically mentioned Shaden Sharp, who, Hmm. you know, committed to Kentucky and didn't actually play this season as somebody who like is kind of an unknown, but has a lot of upside and somebody that he would take a look at. So I thought that was interesting that the guy who at that point, when that podcast was recorded, probably knew that he was going to take that job, said that on a podcast. So I thought that was interesting. So I would say the likelihood to answer your question, like I, I, kind of all over the place here but to answer your question i think i would rank the order of likelihood they trade the pick one they keep the pick and just use it at seven two they trade back for multiple guys three because that gives them more picks either to use or to use in other trades to get more guys i don't really see them moving up because then you'd have to give up other assets and you have to really be sure that whoever you move up to take is the is the one to get like Right. So I don't really see that one, but I think I would rank the other ones, trade the pick, keep the pick, trade back as in order of how likely I think it is. Hmm. So, so you mentioned Mike Schmitz. Uh-huh. Uh, what were your thoughts on them hiring ESPN's Mike Schmitz? I thought it was a really smart and kind of innovative and outside the box move of the yeah. type that you would not have seen from this organization, maybe under the previous general manager it's not a move that i really could have seen him making i think it's really smart on a number of levels one like nobody and i i don't know mike well i know him enough to you know i've seen him at events i know him enough to like say hi to him when i see him i don't i don't pretend to know the guy well but i've been reading his work for 15 years i've been following his work for a long time nobody has grinded more over the last 15 years being so at true. every single, not just, you know, high school events, college events, international events, nobody I think has a better database of just every single prospect yeah. that would maybe even like possibly be on a team's radar than this guy. And it, and like other, and like the thing is like the whole draft express database that him and uh, Gavoni have put together teams lean on that. Like teams use that stuff, that Intel and use that information too. So if you're hiring a, uh, you know, a assistant GM with, you know, with that info, not only are you getting that, you know, database of info for yourself, you're also hiring him to work for you so that the other 29 teams can't use that info now. So you're taking, yeah. you know, you're helping yourself and hurting the other 29 teams. So in that sense, I think it's a really smart move. And it's also like, like a huge pivot, I think, from the way that this organization operated before you guys want to hear something crazy. Uh, Joe Cronin told us at exit interviews about a month ago or whatever, that 
he recently hired a second international scout in the organization, which means they only had one before. And (laughs) we're talking about, this is a league now where this year, the top three MVP candidates were all Mm non-Americans. The two guys that won the last two, you know, the last four MVPs, like with, you know, Giannis winning two, Luca winning two, are all both foreign players and, you know, international guys. And then also Luca is from another, like, and so the fact that like as an organization, the Blazers only before this under Neil Olshay only had one international scout is just <laughs> insane to me. And so now you're bringing in a guy, not only did they hire another scout, but now you're bringing in a guy with Mike Schmidt, who for 15 years has been going to every single one of these international events and has been tracking all of these overseas prospects since they were, you know, 12 or whatever. Yeah. So like, you're really just, you're, you know, you're just bringing yourself up to uh, just the standard of just kind of how the league, where a lot of the talent in the league is coming from now and how a lot of teams approach finding the talent. And I know that like getting a guy like, you know, getting Nikola Jokic in the second round and he wins back-to-back MVPs. I know that's like an extreme outlier. That's probably never going to happen again, but Mm -hmm. Giannis also wasn't a lottery pick. I mean, there's some like, Everybody knew about Luca going into the 2018 draft. That wasn't like one where only a few teams were up on it because everybody kind of knew that that was going to be like the next guy. But where this helps is when there's a guy like a Jokic or a Giannis that is kind of under the radar that isn't like talked about since he was 16 as this is for sure going to be an NBA superstar. You can now be one of the teams that was in on him and now not, not one of the teams where your fans are like later asking why didn't we take Nikola Jokic in the second round? Or why didn't we right. take Giannis? Like there were not, not every team was in on those guys. And now I think by hiring a hiring Mike Schmitz and B just like stepping up your international scouting, you know, operation in general. Now you can maybe be one of the teams that's in on the next guy. It's, it's funny that you brought that up because when you said that they only had one international scout, I started trying to think of like, when was the, when did the Blazers last draft an international prospect? Never happened under all shape. Okay. Yeah. All right. They drafted under the old, old under the older regime. Uh, that you know, Victor Claver out of Spain. They drafted in uh, 2019. Okay. Yeah. Or not yeah. 2019, 2009. They drafted yeah. him, and then uh, like Petteri Kopanen a few years before that. But since then, like, no, it was all. I, I I actually when I heard that, I went back and looked at the previous GM's track record, and yeah, no international guys, and wow. also no. I think what it I think what it also shows is that Joe Cronin is a lot more of a collaborator and a lot more, you know, between hiring uh, Mike Schmitz, they just hired uh, Andre Patterson from the Cavs front office uh, a couple mm-hmm. months ago. Uh, they just hired Sergio Oliva, who was an assistant coach with the jazz and was in the uh, Sixers front office before that they've made some high profile front office hires. They had, they're, they're not like increasing the size of their front office because they had the same number of assistant GMs under Neil Olshay. It's just that you never heard about any of them because Neil Olshay couldn't deal with the idea of anybody besides him getting credit for stuff. Yeah. So, and it seems like Mike Schmidt is a lot more of a you know collaborator who wants to have different voices in the room and wants to get different perspectives on you know whether you know your opinions that maybe don't agree with his or he just kind of wants to have more different voice. Like ever since like the front office changes that took place in December, there's just been a lot more of like everybody being aligned and like the Chauncey having more input on stuff. And Dame obviously now is going to have a lot of input on the roster. It's not so much like run from the top down where 
one guy is just running the entire show and everybody else can just sort of deal with it. Like maybe yeah. it was under the previous regime. Okay, Sean, Sean, this has been great. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, we have one <laughs> more question for you though. Okay. Uh, Portland broke up the Damon CJ pairing this season, a move that a lot of Blazers fans had been waiting for. You know, they felt like the pair had kind of run its course. Now you mentioned the Blazers are expected to sign Anthony Simons to a deal this summer uh-huh. with the expectation that he will be Dame's new backcourt running mate. I've already seen comments from some Blazers fans wondering if they are making the same mistake pairing these two smaller guards with questionable defense to lead the team. Do you share those team building concerns or do you think fans should be more confident about a Dame Ant pairing? I understand where those concerns are coming from. What I'll also say though, is that CJ was making like max level money Mm -hmm. to be in that role. I would expect the deal that, they eventually sign Anthony Simons to, to maybe be in like the 17 to $20 million a year range. Hmm. So not nearly, it's not nearly as much. And again, this is why I never thought the Zach Levine stuff made sense. Cause like, you're going to have to pay him twice as much money to be in right. that role. Yeah. Like, so having Simons in that role, making half as much money as CJ was making, I think opens a lot of stuff up. It's not that those two, you know, it's, it's not that like, oh, you have two scoring guards like that. Yeah, you, you, there's no way to possibly build a good team around them. It's that if you have two guys that, you know, have that same skill set making that much money, it's really hard to find other guys to put around, especially if you're it, just like staking your entire professional reputation on the one that was more expendable being actually the better one as, hmm. as, as some people did in the organization. It makes sense. Well, Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show. Go follow Sean on Twitter at Hyken uh, and read his stuff at Bleacher Report. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right, Al, our next guest, it's Jay King. He covers the Celtics for The Athletic, and he's also the co-host of the Anything is Potable podcast yes. on The Athletic the, Podcast did, Network. Did what? you see the picture I took last night? No. Inside the Warriors media room, bathroom, there is a sign that said non-potable water. <gasps> yeah. It's not potable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the so, only thing that's not potable. <laughs> it's, it's literally not potable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Who who tells you that the the water in the urinal is is not drinkable? <laughs> I don't know. 
It's got to, you <laughs> yeah. better mix you better mix that into the end of your anything is potable ending at the uh, oh, I will. On the next spot. I will. Uh, so Jay, in your preview article for this series, you mentioned how excited you were to watch Boston's guards chase around Golden State shooters, especially Steph Curry. Game 1 started with a flurry from Curry, who scored 21 in the first quarter and finished the game with 34. Uh, how did Boston adjust their approach on Steph defensively during the game, or was it just Steph missing shots? And how do you expect them to start on Steph in game two? Well, they went small. That was one of the factors. They went to just a single big, which typically their double big lineup has been awesome defensively. But when you're dealing with Steph, when you're dealing with Clay, like that's just a lot for big dudes to to keep up with. Uh, they even went away from Grant Williams for the fourth quarter. I don't even I don't know if that's because he got beat a couple times early, or because they were just rolling with uh, a smaller lineup with Peyton Pritchard in it. Um, but I, I think honestly, I I was talking to someone from the Celtics before the game, and he said I hope we can survive our defense in the first half. And he knew that the adjustment from Giannis and Jimmy Butler, who are awesome and killed the Celtics in different ways, but also don't want to shoot, like the game plan against them is totally different to then going to Steph and needing to chase around so many screens and needing to stay attached to his body and just the constant dedication it takes to accomplishing that. And they were awful about it in the first quarter. He got wide open shot. Like it wide was open. bad. Yeah. <laughs> it was bad. And and I think part of it was just the shock of going from two stars that literally they they were daring to shoot. There were times during the Heat series when it was almost disrespectful to Jimmy Butler the way they were playing him. Yeah. But but you know, fourth quarter I thought they they really locked in. That that stretch when after Curry came back in, I think the Warriors scored on five straight possessions, and then they went scoreless for five minutes, and the Celtics defense kind of found itself there, I thought. So then on the other end of the court, if if Boston had lost this game, I feel like Celtics fans probably still would have felt okay because they were competitive in a game where Jason Tatum shot only 3 of 17 from the field. What did you think about the Warriors' defensive strategy on Tatum, and how much did that play a role in his poor shooting night? Yeah, I, I think that had a lot to do with it. Uh, he also just missed some wide open shots, and I, like maybe that's because the the Warriors took away his rhythm, took away the easy looks. Um, but there were a number of like wide open looks that he typically drains those ones, and he just he just didn't. Uh, the Warriors, I think it, I think it's because they're a little smaller. Sometimes they have to really sell out to to guard the rim and I think the Celtics knew that they would have uh openings for the Derek Whites and the Al Horfords of the world um so Tatum was able to help those guys get going and once they did like the fourth quarter for those guys was just insane. Seven for seven from three to start. What were you the thinking? Fourth. Like sitting there watching that. Like, could you believe what was happening in that fourth quarter? We were. I think we were all stunned. I, I yeah. was. Like everyone was like, "What the fuck just <laughs> happened?" You know, like it. It's the Warriors, and they're the ones who go on those runs. Yeah. In Chase Center, they're the ones who hit tons of threes, and. 
you know, finally dig in and get stops and just get rolling. And for the Celtics to do that to them on the road was just stunning. It was absolutely stunning. And I think it it's, well, I don't think, it did start early in the fourth quarter with Jordan Poole, who just kind of had a rough game. Yeah, he, he It's one thing to run the offense against most defenses. It's a different thing to run the offense when Steph's not out there yeah. against this Celtics defense. And I, I think he felt the the difference there in at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And by the time Steph got back, it was a close game when when it hadn't been close throughout most of the third quarter. So I think those Jordan Poole minutes, they need to find a way to to handle those better moving forward, the Warriors. So it feels like the entire playoff run, the conventional wisdom on defending Boston has been to give up threes to the Boston Celtics role players. Uh, so we're now in the finals and looking over but the But Derek White's a father now. And, and Derek White's a father, right? This is a, this is a big deal. This actually is a big deal. Uh, we've got Horford at 46% from three, Grant Williams at 40%, Peyton Pritchard at 38 Marcus Smart's at 35%. Uh, Derek White, who seems like the obvious candidate for that, was 30, is 32% over the playoffs, but is shooting 36% since the first-round series against the Nets. Uh, yeah. Is this that, even a viable I mean, over strategy? Over the last four games, whatever, that's even better. Uh, yeah. I think it's kind of what you have to do. You have to try to give those up, and honestly, some of the sh- that shooting is is probably pretty unsustainable. <laughs> like Al Horford yeah. has never been a forty six percent guy in his entire career. You look up his career high, and it's less than forty percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek White, like he really struggled at times this season, I, as well as he's shooting lately he's the the caliber of shooter where he's probably one slide from being just a huge problem for the Celtics offense. Yeah. And Marcus Smart, he can hit a bunch. Uh he he's one of the most streaky guys in the league, but if if you're thinking, okay, I I need to stop the paint against Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown or guard Marcus Smart at the three, that's a pretty easy answer. I do think, like, they just let Derek White and Al Horford just walk into threes early in that game. Yeah. And once you are allowed to get in that type of rhythm, that makes some of the nonsense that White hit in the fourth quarter just just easier. And so I, I think the Warriors need to sharpen up on that, but... But it's a lot to deal with Tatum and Brown now that they've become playmakers and now that they put more stress on a defense. Like Tatum, I think the the biggest part of his playmaking, his 13 assists in game one that not a lot of people will talk about is he's not settling for jumpers anymore. He's yeah. getting to the paint. He's forcing you to send help. He's forcing you to send a double and have guys rotate to the rim to try to stop him. And he's just putting teams in totally different positions than he ever used to. On top of the the better passing and the more willing passing, it's the unwillingness to let teams off the hook 
that has helped transform him and, and open up those other guys and allow them to shoot better percentages because they're in better, better rhythm. So teams that win game one of the finals end up winning the series 71% of the time. Though, interestingly, teams that win game one of the finals on the road only win the series 47% of the time. Celtics fans, understandably excited, probably already thinking about ring number 18. But is there anything from game one that would have you worried from Boston's side? Not really. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Curry went off for 21 points in the first quarter, and they were within four. Yeah. And they still led at halftime. Um, Like, the third quarter was obviously unspeakable from a Celtics perspective, but they were able to overcome it and did it with a fourth quarter so dominant that it was tied for the widest margin in NBA Finals fourth quarter history. And they did that on the road. Um, So I I think, like, the obvious concerns – are still the same Steph (laughs) Steph yeah like can you can you stay sharp enough on Steph to to stay attached to him and make things difficult for him and not only that but also do that while not giving Draymond Green pass to the rim and not also leaving Clay Thompson and I think the the defense on Jordan Poole was very promising if they can take away his offense, then his defense is just a liability for Golden State. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think the Celtics come away from Game One with any new concerns. It's yeah, maybe maybe offensive rebounding. Lo- Looney for three quarters just tortured them yeah. on the glass, yeah, and and that was a huge huge issue for them. And he's been a, a beast on the offensive glass this whole playoff run. And I think part of it is just because Steph draws so much attention that you can kind of forget about Looney or you can have, you know, not the right angles on Looney, but they need to do a better job on the on the glass. Um, the one like- thing I think, beyond the obvious, the one thing I think is they should be happy about is – I think the Warriors are going to have a much tougher time turning them over than the Heat did. That that was how Miami stayed in that series, really, was turning them over, especially for stretches. But I don't know if, if the Warriors have the personnel to to do that and, and to muck up the game like that. Now, if they do start to commit turnovers against Golden State, like it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. And yeah. Steph and Clay are running, and the crowd is going crazy. But but I don't know if if they do have the personnel to to impact Boston's offense like that. As good as their defense is, that's just not the type of guys that they have. What about Robert Williams? Because there were some significant questions about his health coming into the series. They were a minus ten when he and Horford were on the court in Game One. Do you think that Celtics big lineup can be successful in this series? And how do you just think he looked in general? I think it's tough. Um, I. I also think part of that was just being on the court at the beginning when they weren't yet ready yeah. for Stephen Curry. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's necessarily a death knell to that lineup. That said, it's really tough for a too big lineup to just deal with not just all the shooting the Warriors have, but all the off ball movement. Like there was one play 
where Horford's trying to chase her on a pin down to to close out to Clay Thompson, and it's like <laughs> good luck, man. Like Hor- Horford is great at handling himself on the perimeter, but there are just some things big guys are never asked to do, and and that's one of them. So I, I do think it it this might be a series for them to go smaller, for them to to use use one big and and see what happens there. I, I thought Robert Williams' health and the way he moved was actually promising. Like he looked so hobbled in game seven of the Heat series. And for him to have four blocks and there was one play when Steph was going to the rim for a pretty wide open lefty le- layup and this was I think it was during the fourth quarter and Robert Williams noticed late and he's he was still able to recover and and block the shot at the last second and yep. it was a miss and the those are the type of plays he makes when he's healthy and that was the type of play late in that heat series that he just wasn't making and so I, I think maybe the the couple of extra days of rest before the finals like that that may be very good for him, and then there's an extra day off between most of the games in the series, so he he may he may be healthier during this series, which is a big deal for them. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I know I'm looking outside right now. Sun's out, birds are chirping. It's time to start getting outside. Uh, I know that I like to get outside and play basketball with my kids, and honestly, I need to get into a fitness routine in order to keep up with these guys, and Peloton is there for me. Peloton's varying class links were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class, or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals. Peloton's classes were made to challenge you. There are a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, full body strength, or marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you're already excelling in. Peloton's program and instruction push you to be your best. Their expert coaches and nonstop vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run indoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Well, Jay, uh, thank you so much for answering our questions. We, of course, hope you have a wonderful time covering the finals. But it is time for Andrew versus The Beat, our weekly trivia show where Andrew goes head-to-head with a beat writer. This week, it's the return of Jay King. This is my comeback story. Jay, he's promising a comeback against Andrew. Jay, you know how this works. I'm coming up with eight questions about the Boston Celtics. I I will say, before this starts. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm playing under protest because I, I know really? you hand select I know you hand select the questions beforehand. <laughs> I, I know this is rigged. I know I'm set up for failure. How dare you? How dare you? I, I want nothing that, more than Andrew to lose every single week. He, Embarrass he himself so that I yeah. can become the host of the show. Andrew, get him out of here. Make it the That's Al right. Baby Cake Show. Okay, so there's eight I questions. See, I see through it. I just want you to know. <laughs> uh, now, these questions are all about Boston Celtics 
in the playoffs or the or the finals throughout history. Uh, so you're going to give me a number between one and eight. It'll correspond to a question. If you get it right, you'll get at least two points. If you get it wrong, Andrew will have a chance to steal. You know the rest, so uh, just start us off with a number between one and eight. Four. Question number four. Which Boston Celtic holds the record for most points in a finals game with 43 points? And if you would like a hint, I will tell you the year it happened, but you can only get one point if I tell you the year. Hmm. Most points in a finals game by a Boston Celtic. Only 43 points. Been a lot of finals games, though. I've I've got to go with Larry Bird. It's a great guess, but it's wrong. Andrew, you have a chance to steal. <laughs> oh, shoot. Boston Celtics trivia is very hard because it goes back a long time. It can involve a lot of different guys. <laughs> Storied franchise. Storied, um, Andrew. John Havlicek. <laughs> Andrew, that is correct. Yes, for one God. point. See, this, this, this is this is where this is where I, I just question the whole process of this. <laughs> You're Andrew versus the beat truther. He he just he just reaches deep into his ass and pulls out John Havlicek. <laughs> yeah, why did you say that, Andrew? Though, why would you guess John Havlicek? Well, I, my my initial thought was Paul Pierce, but I feel like Jay would have known that. I feel like Jay would have absolutely known if Paul Pierce did mm, that. So yeah, I, I, I knew it, it wasn't one of those guys. I figured it would have been somebody prior, and he already guessed Larry Bird. I'm like, who else scores a lot of points? Like, I don't know. Uh, all right, Andrew, uh, you have <laughs> control of the board. It, uh, it's your turn. Number one. Question number one. Number one. The Celtics hit 21 three-pointers in game one, which is the second most three-pointers they have hit this entire uh, – actually, ever hit in a playoff game. The last hmm. time the Celtics were in the finals in 2010 – how many total three-pointers did they hit as a team in the seven-game series against the Lakers? Now, this one, you get to choose who answers first, Andrews. So you can have Jay okay. give you a number, and you can go higher or lower. Or if you're feeling really confident for some reason, you can guess. I'll say 40. Okay, so Andrews starting us off with 40. So, Jay, you just have to say higher or lower. This is the total three-pointers that the Celtics hit as a team in the seven-game finals against the Lakers in 2010. So... My thought process is Paul Pierce hit a number of them and there wasn't much beyond him. And that was I mean, I remember game seven of that series as the most grind. It was like so everything bad. <laughs> everything inside the paint. Nobody could get anything outside the paint. But there was and and Ray Allen was like just rough, rough percentages in that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. 40 divided by seven. (laughs) (laughs) Math. That's less than six per game? I I, got to go over. The correct answer, the Boston Celtics hit 33 threes in the 2010 finals. Ray Allen hit 12. The game has changed. (laughs) Paul Pierce hit eight. (laughs) Rasheed hit five. Nate Robinson hit five. Uh, That's about it. Rondo hit two. Hey. Also, our minds are so warped by the NBA today, and like, what's a reasonable amount of threes, or what felt like a reasonable amount back then? Honestly, that it's like, insane that how much how much has changed. The Celtics hit twenty one last night in Game yeah. One. Because yeah. I went back originally to the and when they won in 08, 
and they hit like yeah. 52 in that series. But so, and that was only a six game series. So I think I feel like 2010 was just weird. That was an, it was an ugly series. Was very, yeah, was that very, was just disgusting. Just guys. It was a Metal just, World Peace series. Yeah, just thumping on each other the whole <laughs> series. <laughs> okay, Jay, you have control of the board. You are already down three. This is this is not going well for me. I'm going with five. <laughs> Question number five. With the Blazers missing the playoffs this year, the Celtics now hold the active record for most consecutive playoffs with eight straight playoff appearances. There are two teams tied with six consecutive appearances. Name them both. I'll give you one point per correct answer. The Bucks and the Heat. The Bucks is correct for one point. The Heat is incorrect. So, Andrew, you can steal one point. If you can think of the other team, six hmm. straight. Spolstra didn't get to the playoffs one of those years? What the fuck happened, Spo? Uh, let's see. When was that? Yeah, they, they missed it in 2018-19 and also in 2016-17. Yeah. They got a hero. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot. I should have thought about the lottery. I didn't even think about that. I'm bad at this fucking game. <laughs> <laughs> Philly? That is incorrect. It is the Utah Jazz. Dang it. I was thinking of the Jazz, but I didn't. Uh, All right, Andrew, uh, your choice. Uh, number two. Question number two. Al Horford scored 26 points in game one of the finals. There is only one other Boston Celtic in franchise history who scored at least 25 points in a finals game at the age of 35 years or older. This Celtic who was a Hall of Famer and on the NBA's 75th anniversary team, did it in 1969. In what year? 1969. Think back. Where were you? <laughs> where were you in 1969? Bill Russell. I have no idea. Great guess. Wrong guess. Jay, you have yeah. a chance to steal. Sam Jones. That is correct. For one point. It is, I'm on the board! It is now three to two. And Jay, you have control of the board. Seven. Let's go with seven. Question number seven. It's well known that the Celtics and Lakers sit atop the NBA in terms of playoff success. This is a key question right here. This Very is a key. really key question. With a win in the finals, Boston could move ahead of the Lakers for a number of championships. The Lakers, however, will still have the lead in playoff wins. They have 458 to the Celtics 391. Which NBA franchise is third all-time in playoff wins with 242? It's definitely not San Antonio, but I'm going with San Antonio. <laughs> well, Jay, you're absolutely right that it's not San Antonio. Uh, they do have 222. They are fourth all-time, but they are not third. Oh, they third. were close. Andrew, you have a chance to steal for one point. Who do you think it is? <sighs> is it Utah? Utah. Wow. No. Awful guess. Not, Chicago? Not even in the top 15, Andrew. Would you believe that? Okay. The Bulls? Uh, also incorrect. They're at eight. They're at seven. Sixers? The Sixers are in third. Dang it. With 242 Dang wins. It. All right. So, Jay, you didn't lose any ground there, but, Andrew, it is your turn. Uh, number three. Question number three. Blow it, schlecht. Jason. Blow it. <laughs> Jason Tatum had 13 assists in game one. There are only five other Celtics in franchise history who have totaled at least 13 assists in a finals game, and we're going to name them all, Andrew. So how this works, Andrew's going to give me a name, then Jay will give me a name. We'll go back and forth. So you're thinking of Celtics 
who you could imagine having at least 13 assists in a finals game? Rondo. Rajon Rondo is correct. Over to Jay. Bob Cousy. That is correct. Bob Cousy. Back to Andrew. Shout out to Zach Harper. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> um, Larry Bird. Larry Bird is correct. Back to Jay. There's only two names left. Celtics, who have had at least 13 assists in a finals game. This is really hard now. <laughs> yeah, this, this gets tough here. You know what? I'm going to go with... Jojo White. Jojo White. Did he have 13 assists in a finals game? He did not. Oh, <laughs> oh fuck you. <laughs> the oh, other man. two names, Dennis Johnson and Bill Russell. Bill Russell. Mm. Not an easy one, but if you had said it, it would have sounded I should have known Dennis Johnson. Jojo White. Jojo White was a good guess. I'll, I'll give myself credit for, for a good guess. You're welcome to do I'll that. give myself credit for a wrong answer. <laughs> okay, there's two questions left. Uh, number six or number eight. Jay, you have control of the board. I will tell you. We're going eight, baby. And you picked a good one because this one has the potential to get four points. So you can make it all Ooh. up right here. Oh, no. After his six rebounds in game one, Al Horford has 169 rebounds in the playoffs, which is second among all players in the 2022 playoffs. Who else in, is in the top five for total rebounds in the 2022 playoffs? And you get one point per correct answer. So thinking of all the guys who have been in the 2022 playoffs, total rebounds, top five. I already gave you Al Horford. He's at number two. Who else is in that top five? Kevon Looney. Okay, that is incorrect. <laughs> right away? Uh, right away, unfortunately. I just read a story from Marcus Thompson about his amazing rebounding. <laughs> what, what? I guess he did not play in it's like the like first It's been like a three-week stretch, though. It hasn't been – like he didn't play at some points in the Yeah, playoffs. he didn't really play in the first series, but I figured he'd still played longer than everyone uh, else. You know what? That yeah. What? You're correct. That is correct. Oh! I think that it, it hadn't like... He didn't qualify for the games played leaderboard or something? No, I think it was because I, I did this last night before last game uh, clocked in. Yep. Oh, word. Okay. Looney. So that Looney, is correct. Baby. So that's one Looney. point for you. You can keep going, Jay. All right. All right. I'm within one now. Uh, you're actually not. Um, Andrew has five, but you're close. I'm within two now. You're within two. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I am within two. Um, Bam at a bio. That is correct for another point. He was number four with 144. Come on, Looney had his fifth with 132. Okay, so I've got the two. You got two least. Yeah, those would be the hardest ones. And then, so you still got number one and number three overall left to go. You could tie it up right here if you get this next name. Draymond Green. That is incorrect. Incorrect, and I know that is incorrect because now I'm staring at the updated list. Andrew, you have a chance to steal. Andrew Wiggins? Also incorrect. Number one overall with 170 rebounds, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And in third place. In two rounds, that's impressive. That is impressive. I should have known. I watched him gobble up a million rebounds and 9,000 points and – yeah. Infinite. Don't get down on yourself. You got Looney and Autobio. That was very good. Uh, number three with 147 rebounds, Luka. Luka Doncic. 
Wow. Up wrong. Okay, Andrew. All you have to do is get this right. However, if you get it wrong, it will leave the door open for Jay. So you have to get this right. Final question. Okay. If okay. Boston wins the finals, Ime Udoka will become only the third coach in NBA history to win a championship in his first year as a head coach. Name the other two coaches who have achieved this feat. You get one point per correct answer. Steve Kerr and Phil Jackson. Man, what? where am I getting this bad information from? Uh, because right when you said Steve Kerr, I said, oh, yeah, that's obviously correct. But that isn't on my list. So I'm going Then to- it doesn't count. <laughs> that that was- <laughs> uh, So uh, you know what? I'm going to give you the one point, Andrew. Your other, your other guess was incorrect. Okay. What was your other guess? Okay. Phil Jackson. Okay. Um, so, Jay, there are still two names out there. If you get both of these, you can secure a tie. Oh, man. Um... And yes, there are only three. Steve Kerr is the third one. Are you sure about that? I am sure now. <laughs> I had some bad Googling last night. Um, Bill Russell. Bill Russell. That seems like a good guess as well. Uh, that is also incorrect, which means Andrew didn't has win won. his first year as player coach, huh? The, you know what? Let me look this up because... They, they, <laughs> <laughs> okay, he didn't. He did not. 1966-67, he was their coach. Did not win. He did win his second and third years. The other two guys, Paul Westhead, both with the Lakers, Paul Westhead and Pat Riley, 1980 and 1982. Oh, I feel like Bill Russell must have been an awful coach if he lost with himself as the <laughs> as the <Yeah>. star player. <laughs> that was a clo- well, that was Jay. a close battle. 6 to 4. Jay, Nothing gives me more pleasure than saying that I beat Jay King in trivia one more time. Uh, Jay, thanks I'm so much. I'm so mad for- I didn't get Giannis. <laughs> I literally watched him have a million rebounds. <laughs> I watched him just trample over people for seven games. Oh and I thought, I thought to myself, I'll pick Draymond Green instead. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet answer, bro. <laughs> Uh, go follow Jay on Twitter at by Jay King, and you can listen to him on the Anything Is Potable podcast. If you need just more Celtic stuff, we'll be. I'm the producer for that show. We'll be dropping an episode today, tomorrow. Yeah, we are when? recording in like 20 minutes from now. Perfect. You're gonna hear it. You're gonna hear the pod already. It's already up uh, by the time you're listening to this. So go listen to that show. It's a very very fun basketball podcast. Not only Celtics, but a great basketball podcast. So go listen to it. Uh, thanks so much, Jay. Thank you guys. Although. Next time, next time is redemption. <laughs> next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Sean Hyken and Jay King for joining the Saturday Slam and Jam podcast here on the Athletic NBA show. If you would like your review read on the podcast, all you have to do is leave five stars. Make sure you mention Slam and Jam on Apple Podcasts, and we will read it right here on the show. So please do that. Hope you guys are enjoying the NBA Finals. And we will talk to you guys again next week.